I was given the opportunity to talk about the sanctity of life. And as I began to prepare and look into this topic and what exactly I was going to even talk about, I decided to ask around the church and ask different people what they thought of this topic of the sanctity of life. And the response that I got back was that it seems as if a majority of people in this church would hold to a pro-life opinion. Now, I know that's not everyone in a room this large. There's certainly someone in here that wouldn't agree with that. But a majority of this church already knows the truths that we've sang about already, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that our Father in heaven knit us together in our mother's womb. A lot of us have come to that conclusion and believe in that conviction. And so I thought about if I would get up and just preach on why life begins at conception, and I would think, you know, I could provide the, the scientific evidence for it and the, the theology and the text and the scriptures that point us to that conclusion. And I thought, that'd be easy. That'd be simple. But Pastor Tom didn't give me this topic because it's an easy or a simple topic. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to go a bit deeper. I wanted to take an extra step. If a majority of us have established that fact, then let's take it an extra step further and think about, and I'll ask the question, how do we talk about the topic of abortion? How do we as believers talk about it? Yes, today we're going to be talking about talking, which sounds a little bit unnecessary, or why, are we, why should we bring that up? And I, I, I think we have that thought because we forget that our words have power. I could get up here and I could come up with one word, one word, and if I said it, this entire congregation would not like me. I'm not going to, granted. <laughs> but I could do that. Or anybody in this room could. Our words have power. Or alternatively, if I go into a room where everyone doesn't like me, if I say words in a certain way, provide enough evidence or you know, of support for whatever I'm talking about, I could shift the opinion of that crowd. And any of us could if we used our words Correctly, our words have power. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to ask exactly what does it mean that our words have power? And for that, we're going to go to the book of James, chapter 3. So as you're opening up in your Bibles, I'm going to give you a little bit of the, the foundation of what we're going to be going through today. We're going to be talking about um, this issue of words having power. What does that mean? And then when we talk about that, what we're going to do is we're going to see whatever truth is, is put in the scriptures that we can apply. And then we can take that application and say, how do we talk about abortion to people that might agree with us? And how do we talk about abortion with people that might disagree with us? Because those conversations will look different. And so that's the way that we're going to be going today. And we're going to be jumping around in different points of Scripture. And so stick with me here. We're going to be in the book of James, chapter 3, specifically verses 1 through 12. Allow me to read the first two verses and kind of introduce kind of what we're, why we're here. James says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. 
And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able in many, able also to bridle his whole body. And so James is, whenever you read the book of James, I love reading the book of James. It's a very, it's, he's a black and white writer. He does no gray area. He kind of says it's one thing or the other. You're either doing something wrong or perfect. And what he does is he tells us in, verse, in, in this passage, he says, for we all stumble in many ways. Many of us might stumble in thinking, having temptations in stealing, temptations to lie. Maybe there's sexual temptations. Maybe there's issues of pride in all of us. But in every single one of us, we all stumble in what we say. Our words have power. If we, if we use our words incorrectly, the scripture says that we can stumble on it. And we might hear that and say, I, I, I can control what I say. I don't, I don't swear. I control what I say, right? But then James is going to give us in these next couple of verses, specifically verses 3 through 8. And he's going to give us a couple of different examples that are like, you know, literary hammers hitting us over the head with Point after point, support after support. And he's, and, he's, and he's talking about what exactly is at stake here. Read with me verses 3 until 5. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Did you catch that? Those were the first two kind of hammers that he hits over our head. He first talks about a horse. I'm, I'm, I'm not much of a horse rider. I've done it once. If you haven't noticed, I'm not much of a country kid. But when I rode on this horse, I was in seventh grade. I was at a youth event and at a youth retreat out in like a camp somewhere. I can't remember what it's called, but I was, I had never seen a horse before. I'd never seen one up close. I didn't know that you like pet this weird part on its face. I didn't know anything about horses. And I walked up to this horse and I didn't realize how big these horses, these animals are. These are massive animals. And if you put me in a boxing ring with a horse, the horse is going to kill me. But because the way that you guide a horse is they have a bit. This bit is a piece of metal that they put into their mouth, and it's connected to the reins that go back to the rider on its back. Because you control this part of the horse, you control the whole thing. You can direct it to the left. If you direct it to the left, it pulls to the left, or direct it to the right, it pulls to the right. Or, and because I, even though I didn't know anything about the horse, I could control it because I could control this. Just like with us, if we can control this, James is saying, we can control this. Hammer number two, he talks about a ship. He talks about this massive ships being controlled by the strong winds of the seas. We're, and with, in James's time, he's thinking of these massive Roman military ships. Roman government was in control when James was writing this book. And he would have thought of these massive ships that could carry hundreds of people across vast oceans, and specifically across the Mediterranean Sea, where there's known for having strong winds and incredible storms. Think of the storms that Paul went through. Ferocious storms. And these ships were being guided through that, and they weigh thousands of pounds, and they're, again, these massive things. 
but because of this tiny little rudder in the back, it directs the whole ship wherever the guy who's controlling the rudder wants it to go. For the ship, if you can control this little piece, you can control the whole thing. And again, for us, if we can control this little piece, we can learn to control the whole thing. And he continues on, and he also and he concludes that, and he says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Are we catching it yet? Are we understanding what's at stake here? If this isn't used incorrectly, if this is used incorrectly, it can do great damage. And James talks about that in this next part, the second half of verse 5 up until verse 8. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And he, he gives us the, another hammer over the head. Boom. Think of forest fires. There's, a, there's forest fires happening in Australia. Or recently, I mean, I, I believe it's on the news. I haven't caught up with the news recently. But it's still, it's a big deal. And they start by a small little spark, by, a, by, a, by maybe a, a poorly lit match, or somebody throwing away an unfinished cigarette. Or even think about the forest fires in the Amazon rainforest. Or think about forest fires that pop up in California and on the West Coast. I have a friend from school. She is from the Northern California section of California, and her town was destroyed by one of these forest fires. And she, I, remember, I clearly remember her telling me that she, when, she came, when she left the town, it was beautiful. If you've never been to Northern California, it's beautiful up there. Beautiful trees, forests, mountains. I've never been there, but the pictures look great. It looks gorgeous. And she remembers seeing all her town set, her house there, the church there. And then she leaves for school finds out her town was wiped out, was forced to return early, and she described it as if it looked like the apocalypse. The trees were burnt down. The ground was a crisp, dark, dead black. The homes were no more. The church was burnt down. It looked like the apocalypse. And all of that can start from just a little bitty spark. Are we catching it yet? Let's continue. Verse 9. With it, being the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, being the tongue, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. I think that in this verse 10, or verse 9 and the first part of verse 10 is important. With this same mouth, we bless God. And with this same mouth, we curse people. That from the same opening comes two things that should not be coming from the same thing. James says this ought not to be so. 
And you know, we, we've all ex- we, a lot of us have experienced this before. It's we get up on Sunday, we praise God, we say hi to our friends, and then when we leave, we curse at somebody who's driving poorly on our way to lunch. With our same mouths, we bless our Father and we curse those made in his image, in his likeness. This ought not to be so. And he says it's like, it's, it's, as, it's as confusing as if an apple tree, he says fig tree, but I'll say apple tree produces oranges and grapes and olives and tomatoes. And it's not how it's supposed to work. It's not natural, is what he's saying. And our mouths, both praising God and cursing people, is not natural. And it ought not to be so. And I encourage you guys, look at what you say for this next week. Really do. Look into the things you're saying. Look at the implications you're making by the jokes that we make, by the conversations we talk about. We use the same thing to bless God and curse those made in his image. And if we're to get a a truth from this passage, a truth from this passage, a, a sum up of everything that's been said, we've covered a lot, and everything that has been said, it comes out to our mouths have great power over us. They can either protect or destroy. Our mouths have great power over us. They can either protect or destroy. And we need to be careful with how we use our mouths, with how we use our words. Because if we're not careful, we're either protecting or destroying. Now you might be thinking to yourself, okay, that's good. Makes sense. It's in the Bible. What does that have to do with the sanctity of life? And I think that with this application, it's very easy to transition into how do we talk about the sanctity of life? Because we can do it well and we can do it poorly. And so what I want to do is I want to take that conclusion that our mouth has great power over us and that it can either protect or destroy us. And I want to say, well, how does that look for conversations with people that might agree with us on the topic of the sanctity of life? And how that might look for people that disagree with us on the topic of sanctity of life. And so for starting out with what we agree on, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, verse 29. And as you're turning there, I want to say that we as believers and we as humans in general, we love to talk with people that agree with us. We love to. And that's not just Christians, that's everyone. We form our own little, we form our little pockets, if I can say that. Or, and that's not entirely fully a bad thing. That's what we're doing right now. We're coming to church. We sing praises to God. We all agree that the gospel of Christ is worth waking up on Sunday morning, coming in and sitting down in these pews and singing praises to a God that has saved us from sin and wretchedness. We do that. And it's not a bad thing, but I'm saying if, used, if our words are used poorly, then it can destroy. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul is talking to the Ephesians church, and he's been sharing all about how they need to be unified as one body, one body of Christ. And this is an application that he says, with that being said, with you needing to be unified, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And this is 
kind of the inverted part of what James is saying. He's saying that with our mouths, we, we bless God and curse others. Paul is saying, let no corrupting talk. They're saying the same thing here. Just it looks in different ways. And so we can have conversations that we agree on and talk about like the sanctity of life, and it can be used for encouraging and building up. We just heard a testimony today from Alternatives Ministry. Are we not encouraged? Are we not built up? Did it not give grace to those who heard? It's good. We need to be talking about this stuff. But sometimes when we talk about these certain topics, they can turn poorly. They can turn to not build up and encourage, but instead to tear down and destroy. The first example that I think of, and this might just be me, but I love to talk about theology. I love it. It's so fun. I love to to search in the scriptures and find out about how great our God is and look at the mysteries of our God and the greatness of our Lord Jesus and share that with people. Talk to people in my life group. I love it. It's great. And I will chew your ear off if you talk to me. Please do. But just note that ahead of time. And I think I got that from when I was at school, when I was at Bible college training and learning about our God where I would sit there with, with guys on my floor, on my dorm room floor, who would have the same desire to go out and learn and train and learn about God, and we would have these conversations, these late-night conversations that would go into the wee hours of the morning, and we would talk about how great our God is, and that's good. But there's a point in which that can turn bad. And there was every now and then a point when somebody would say something, and Someone might feel offended, or, some, or, or talking would turn into yelling. Yelling would turn into fighting. People would get angry with each other, talking about these intricate good things of God. And we would get angry with each other. And there's one point even I remember when we had to literally pull two guys apart from, from fighting each other, physically fighting each other. We can talk about good things in wrong and poor ways. In that case, we need to look at what we're talking about and how we're talking about it. And we as Christians, I think, we do a couple of things here. When we talk about, we apply this specifically to the sanctity of life, what we do is we, again, we get into our little, our clusters of people that agree with us. We sit around and we say, abortion's wrong. Abortion's bad. You know, it's, it's not good. And we just sit there and talk and talk and talk, but don't do a thing about it. What are we doing about it? If all we do is just sit in here and talk about how bad it is, but don't go out and try to minister to those that are hurting, then what use are we doing? Another thing that we do is we, we, hear, we might hear topics like this, or we might hear testimonies from ministries that, that reach out and help people that are struggling with these difficult decisions, and we sit around and we say, you know, how it's, it's because of those people that abortion's still happening. It's because of that kind of person. Fill in the blank with whomever comes to mind. It's because of those people that these bad things are still happening. And we, we paint a target on people's backs. We say basically that they're the enemies, they're the bad guys, and we're the good guys. That is not encouraging talk. That is not building up. That's tearing someone else down for the sake of making us feel better. We need to watch how we use our words. And something else is we 
hear this topic and we're inspired and we sit in a circle after a service perhaps and say to each other, I can't imagine somebody wanting to make that or having to make that decision. How could somebody make that decision? And then little do we know, a pew in front of us or a pew behind us, there's somebody that at some point in their life felt trapped and felt like they needed to make a choice. They may not have wanted to, but they felt as if they needed to. And they just heard you tar- tearing them apart. They heard us tearing them apart. And I want to specifically say here, I want to clarify that if there's anyone in this room who either has had to make that decision, you know, this is a large enough room, there's got to be somebody that has had to make that decision. I'm so sorry that you had to make that decision. And I want you to know that that guilt you may be feeling, that frustration you might be feeling, that does not come from a good, perfect, and holy God. That our God is willing to forgive us of any sin that we commit. It doesn't matter what the sin is. He will, commit a, he will forgive us of any and all sins we commit. Because he is a gracious and loving father. And it doesn't matter what you have done. God wants you to go to him. It doesn't matter if you've had an abortion. Or if a person in your family has had an abortion. God forgives and God loves you. And he wants you to come to know him. And if you haven't made that decision to know what it means to personally know God, would you talk to me after this service? And I would love to share with you what the gospel is. And so, if we believe the right thing and yet talk about it the wrong way, we're doing something wrong. And we need to examine. We need to look at how we talk about these difficult topics. And now, this conversation can naturally switch from talking to people who agree with us to talking to people who disagree with us. Turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 4. And as we're turning there, we, let's, let's talk about this for a second, because I think it's, easier, it's definitely easier to talk about difficult topics like this with people that agree with us. When people disagree with us on this topic, it's hard, and it's scary, and we, we kind of feel this queasy, tight feeling in our stomach that tells us that this is going to feel uncomfortable. And so we do a number of different things. Specifically, too, we might, if somebody brings up a difficult topic, we might say, oh, okay, yeah, no, no. and just kind of let the conversation pass. No harm, no foul, right? Or we're confronted with someone that disagrees with us, and we tell them, this is wrong, and here's why. These are two opposite sides of this spectrum of responses that we can give. And so when we, we, we have these two opposite extremes, how do we handle these conversations? Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, tells us this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so Paul is talking to these people who were involved in the community. We, we can imagine this church is involved in the community. He's talking to outsiders, people that don't know Christ, people that are not a part of the body of Christ, not a part of the church, would not call themselves Christian. And he's saying that they need to walk in wisdom towards them and make the best use of the time. And this is an interesting part where I get up here as a preacher because I, it's easy for us to stop and say, okay, what's the answer to this? 
And my answer may not, all, may not definitely be a hard point, do this, 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 and this, but it's we need to learn how to walk in wisdom when we have these conversations. Because when we're talking to someone that disagrees with us, we're not just talking on behalf of ourselves. To that person, we're representing Christ. That person may never have encountered a Christian before and may never encounter another Christian again. And we are ambassadors with Christ. We speak on behalf of Christ. And that person talking to us, they find out we're a Christian. We claim to have the truth. We claim to know the truth of who God is and what all of life is all about. And so they, they say, okay, if you know what truth is, then answer this. And so we need to walk in wisdom. Now that's hard to have specific applications because every person we interact with is different. Every person we interact with has their own individual struggles, has their own individual heartbreaking situations in their lives. No two people are the same, and we all know this. It's not a bad thing, but that just means it makes this a little bit more tricky. And so something that I've learned is that in walking with wisdom, it's good to get to a point where if you're having a conversation with somebody that you know you're going to disagree with, specifically on this topic, or even any highly debatable topic, one of the best things that you can do is sit back, shut up, and listen. Because they have a story. And if we don't know what their story is, we don't know what their experiences are, we're not ministering to them. We're ministering to a mold that we put them in that they don't fit. And so we need to ask questions. One of the best questions to ask is simply, why? It's one word. Again, one word can change the course of a conversation. Why? Why do you believe that? Why do you think that? I was, when I was in school, I was a part of a student group that met on Monday nights. It was called Gospel Outreach, where we would meet up on Monday nights, we would pray, and then we'd go out on the streets of Chicago, find random people on the streets, and just say, hi, I'm from Moody Bible Institute. My name's Preston. Do you want to talk about God? Now, that at first sounds crazy, but at, people stop and talk. People want to ask these questions and talk about these topics. And so well, that's, that's just exactly what we did. This was week after week we would do this, and the conversations that I've had are incredible. And I remember one specifically in which we walked up to somebody, me and another guy that we were, we were a partner to, we walked up to somebody and we did the, hey, my name's Preston, this is my friend Christian, we're from Moody Bible Institute, we're talking to people about God, you want to have a conversation? No, and and he, this, this gentleman was sitting on a bench, he's an older gentleman, he looks up at us and he kind of smirks, he goes, I hate Christians. At that point, I stopped and I said, okay, maybe he doesn't, want, he doesn't want to talk. Okay, there's a couple million people in Chicago. We can talk to someone else. And I go to turn away, thinking my other, the, the partner there that I was working with, he was going to turn away with me. But he stopped and he said, well, why do you hate Christians? And this gentleman poured out to us one of the most heart-wrenching, and saddest stories of somebody who has interacted with people who claim to be Christian but are not representing Christ properly. This was a gentleman who his parents at a young age divorced. One of them was having an affair. And to his knowledge, the church did nothing to help. 
And as he grew up and he would interact with different Christians, it wasn't the kind, loving, gracious Christians that God has called us to be. It was the put-your-life-together people. It was these people that would come to him and wouldn't hear his story and hear his struggles and hear his, his, his difficulties with going and trusting God and would just say, you need to have more faith. You need to pray more. You need to love more. And it ultimately culminated with him later on in his life being kicked out of a church because he didn't quit smoking soon enough. He claimed he'd never smoked in the church. I don't know the other side of the story. But to this man's experiences... Christians have been nothing but hateful to him. And so I just remember sitting there and looking at him and saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that Christians have treated you this poorly. That's not how we're supposed to represent a loving God. Do you mind if I tell you about the God that I worship? And he looked at me and he smirked and he said, I'd like that. And so I began to share with him the good news of Jesus Christ. I began to share with him the gospel of our Lord in which God has come down to earth. He had lived a perfect life and he died on the cross paying for the sins of humanity. And that he, out of a loving, sacrificial attitude, he he died for us and he rose from the dead three days later with the power of God vested in him. So that if we confess our sins and trust him as our Lord, that we can have a personal relationship with God, that we can know grace instead of judgment. We can know love instead of hate. We can know freedom instead of bondage. And all of that conversation simply started with a, why do you think that? Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. How are we walking in wisdom? How are we addressing difficult topics? Are we just letting them kind of go? Just, oh, okay, you can whatever, we can agree with that, and not sharing the truth of Christ? Or are we meeting people with where they're at? Are we meeting people in their day-to-day lives? And are we sharing with them the good news that has inspired us to sit here in our pews on Sunday morning and to come here on, some of us come here on Wednesday night, and worship and praise God? Are we using that love that God has shown us to show that love to other people? Or are we avoiding those conversations because they're too hard? It's difficult, but it is a command that God has given us to walk in wisdom towards outsiders because we're representing Christ to those people. How are we representing Christ? Are we doing it well? Or are we doing it poorly? The thing that I noticed about this conversation is that it's very nuanced. There's a lot of different ways we could have gone today. There's a lot of different things we can talk about. And so with that, I would encourage us, don't end the conversation here. We can't end this conversation here. We talk about the sanctity of life. We believe in the sanctity of life. And we support ministries that believe the sanctity of life. We can't end this conversation here. So I would challenge us to talk about it. Talk about it in a way that protects and not destroys. You know, as we learned in James, our mouth has great power over us, and it can either protect or destroy. Let us use our words to protect to represent Christ well, to build up an encouraging talk so that when people know that they're talking to us, they're not only hearing our voice, but they're hearing the voice of God speaking 